Well, it is sweet to rejoice in all of that. And now we get to do another thing that he has commanded us to do as we gather together. We get to open the word of God. Would you turn with me to Ephesians? We're going to be in chapter five once again, and we're going to pick it up where we left off. But before we move into this new section, I just want to revisit what God showed us last week. We looked at verses 15 through 18, and uh, we're going to throw those up on the screen just to kind of remember some of the concepts. We talked about what Paul calls making the best use of the time. We read that in verse 16. He said, make the best use of the time. And we, we pointed out that that phrase, making the best use, is better translated redeeming. Redeeming the time. And the word time uh, does not simply refer to the natural succession of minutes in your day. No, the word time is, is another word that means age because we live in a very unique age and we are to redeem that age. It's unique because, because it's an age in which grace is available to all people, not just Israel, but all Gentile peoples. And I'm grateful because I'm one of those. But it's also unique because it is an evil day. He says the days are evil. We live in an evil day. Is that true? And so it needs redeeming. But it's also unique because it is finite. This age is gonna come to an end one day. The sand is gonna trickle out of that hourglass and there will be no more opportunity. And so we've got an urgent mission in this age to redeem it. That means that we are to unleash the gospel of Jesus Christ upon an evil world that needs to know who Jesus is, amen? And how are we to do that? We do that with the way that Paul closes this section out that we studied last week. At the end of verse 18, he says this, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. How do you unleash the gospel? You must be filled with the Spirit. We see that phrase in the book of Acts up to 10 times, and every time somebody's filled with the Spirit, they are about to open their mouths and the gospel is about to come out. And so we need to be filled with the Spirit. And we are going to look now today and see what that looks like. What does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? That's our mission. Now, how do we recognize it? What does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? Look at verse 19 of Ephesians chapter 5 with me. And this breaks down neatly into three, three steps here. He says, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Well, we just did that together, didn't we? And then he says in verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 21, he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So therein we see what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. And we're gonna tear that up in just a moment after we pray, but before we do, I want you to notice something now. Look again at verse 19. It says, addressing who? One another. And then look in verse 19, submitting to who? One another. So this passage is bookended with that phrase. What does that tell you about the context of our being filled with the Spirit here? This is what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit in the church. One another. Folks, this is how we relate to each other as believers in Jesus Christ. And so we're going to be looking over the next several weeks in Ephesians. There are going to be various messages dealing with different facets of the life of the believer in which we are to be filled with the Spirit. And we're going to begin with the context 
of the church body, the local community of believers, how we relate to one another. That's we're going to... That's what we're going to talk about today. Would you bow with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I just pray your blessing upon our time here in the Word together. God, would you give us a sense of unity? Would you give us an understanding and uh, a passion to apply what we are reading here today in our lives, not just for our own betterment, but for the, the, the way that we relate to each other, the way that we represent Christ in the body called the church. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well... A few years ago, uh, a pandemic began to sweep around our world. COVID-19 is not eradicated necessarily, but a lot of people have begun to re-engage with culture, with society, with life in general. But in those early days, as you know all too well, uh, there was a lot that was unknown about, about this illness, about the symptoms. Heck, there's a lot I still don't know about the symptoms. They seem different from person to person. And we didn't know how deadly it was, but we, we understood that it was quite, quite dangerous. And so a lot of things got shut down, didn't they? Including churches. Because we, we church leaders, we, we didn't want to harm anyone. We didn't want to put anybody in danger. And so we made some hard decisions to close down some services, to close down some events. And we didn't want to do it, but we felt that it was necessary in the early goings. And so we had to get creative uh, to keep people connected the best way that we could, even remotely. And so I went through all this in our church back in California. You can only imagine how strict the rules were back there. And so we did our best, and we wore out our church's Zoom account. Don't you wish you'd go back in time and invest in Zoom before the pandemic? That and hand sanitizer. And of course, those big tubs of Cheeto balls. But anyway... We, we tried to connect from afar, and then when we tried to phase back in, we did it slowly. We had our parking lot services, and we had our lawn services, and then we finally moved indoors, and we had our masks required services, and we had our mass optional services, and then we said, to heck with it, let's just get together and worship. And we all got together. And there was one thing that I never bought into during that whole season of time. I never bought into this idea. I would hear people in ministry circles say, you know, things will never be the same in the church. We're just, we're just going to have to, we're just going to have to learn how to do this remotely. Things are never going to be the same. We're never going to be able to assemble together the way that we used to. And I always said to myself, that's a bunch of hogwash right there. Because in the New Testament, we are commanded to assemble together. We are together. In this paradigm called the local church, our growth, our interaction, our, our development as disciples always, always happens in physical community. We are to learn to serve. We are to learn to bless one another. We are to learn to meet one another's needs. And we become little mini facsimiles of Jesus Christ in community. Corporateness is our nature as a people. And the theme of this book is the people of God. We are a new people, the church. We've been around a long time. What I knew about COVID-19 is it was not going to cause us to cease to be the church. We would not be eradicated. We've been around for 20 centuries. You could trace our history back through Wesley and Moody and Spurgeon and Augustine and Martin Luther and all of those people. You can go all the way back to the first century. You can go back to Irenaeus and Polycarp. Heck, you could go back to Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And we are here and we've been here and we're not going anywhere. Amen? This is who God has called us to be. Yes, and we gather together because we are commanded to, and corporateness 
is part of what makes us who we are. Now, the, the society at large used to value corporateness. It's not a popular notion these days. We don't like to be corporate. We don't like to be together. We don't like to be uh, as seen as part of a greater collective. We are all about individualism. We're all about what we want. In, in our society, it used to be that that was something that we desired. We desired unity. That's how we get, get through big things like World War II. I'm not sure we'd get through World War II today. I don't think that there's a unity there that is necessary for that. I worry about that sometimes. There, there was something that changed in society, a seismic shift. See, in the, in the pre-modern era, man agreed that there was such a thing as absolute truth. We agreed that God was the author of that truth, and the way to find that truth was through his revealed word. That was the general consensus. And then, when the Enlightenment happened... In the 1700s, 1800s, everything that followed there, we began to kind of uh, disintegrate in terms of how we obtained that truth. We still agreed that there was truth, we just didn't agree on how to find that truth. And we're all kind of looking for that truth. And then something happened. Mid-century, in the 20th century, there was a shift. We let go of any notion of right and wrong and absolute truth and black and white. And suddenly it was just whatever, whatever it means to you, whatever your truth is, that's your truth. And I've got my truth and they've got their truth. And what's right to you is right for you. And what's right for me is right for me. And we believed in what caters to the individual. And we started to embrace this notion of, of, of the loner. And you start to see that play out on the silver screen. Movies no longer had black and white characters. They had no, no more uh, clear-cut good guys and bad guys. And it was done away with, the, the, the whole John, John Wayne paradigm. And now we had anti-heroes. We had Marlon Brando, and we had James Dean, and we had Clint Eastwood, right? And we started to see this, this mentality of, I'm, I'm, I'm in this for myself. I'm going to make it happen my way. And in the 60s, people tuned out and they dropped out and they disengaged from the strictures of society and they said, we're not gonna be a part of the great machine anymore. We don't wanna be a part of a collective. We wanna go on and we wanna be our own person. And what they do? They all went to San Francisco and hung out together. <laughs> and what that showed us is that mankind still craves community. What he doesn't like is authority. And so we wanna be together. We just don't wanna be under authority. Well, God has a different design for the church. We are to be in community, but we're to be under the authority of the Holy Spirit. And this is what Jesus prayed for. His final prayer before he was led away was there in the Garden of Gethsemane, John 17, 21. He prayed that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be in us, that they may all be one. Jesus wasn't merely praying for our unity. He wasn't merely praying that we all get along. He was praying that we, we be unified spiritually, that the Holy Spirit would indwell all believers and that we be unified internally. And that prayer was answered on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two, when the Spirit of God fell upon the apostles and they preached and people came to Christ and they were indwelled with the Spirit and the church was born. And so we are unified but I'm here to tell you today that you can be indwelled by the Spirit, you can be sealed by the Spirit, regenerated by the Spirit, baptized in the Spirit, gifted by the Spirit, and you can fail to be filled with the Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It means that not only do you have the Spirit living in you, but you have given Him control over every area, over every aspect of your life. He is in control over your mind, your will, your emotions, your actions. 
And this is something that bears repetition because we can be filled one moment and not filled the next. Peter is filled with the Spirit something like three times in one passage. He never lost his salvation. But we need to be repeatedly filled with the Spirit. What does that look like? That's what we're going to see in our passage today. What does Spirit-filled look like in the church? The first thing that it looks like is this. Number one, Spirit-filled believers are joyful. They're joyful. In verse 19, Paul says, addressing one another. Be filled in the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Note the musical terminology there. There's a musical motif here. And I love that because I was a worship leader for years and years. I am very passionate about worship. I love to stand down there and be led in worship by this marvelous team. Don't we have great worshipers on the stage? I'm so grateful for them. And I love to be led in worship by them. But you know what? Music alone is not worship. Music alone is not worship. I used to say music is a vehicle for worship. I think that's still true, but I think there's a more accurate way to say that because the truth is you don't need music to worship, okay? Music does not inspire worship. Worship inspires music. But you worship whether or not you have music. If you don't believe that, you just visit communist China. You visit one of those house churches over there and they worship together, but they can't sing out loud. So I knock down their door, drag them away. In fact, I, I know of one instance where they, they whisper to one another what they're going to be singing together and then they silently sit in, in, in each other's presence with their eyes closed and they sing silently in their hearts. What a touching concept. But there is authentic worship because worship starts on the inside of the believer. When we sing, whatever it is that we do as we express ourselves, it is the song of the saved. It's not the song of the unbeliever. You know, unbelievers can't worship. They can't worship. There's no spirit that is calling them to that internally. Sometimes people in ministry circles, they say, you know, does our worship music engage the world? I couldn't care less. Don't care. It's not for them. It has nothing to do with them. We, we don't do the music that we do to, to appeal to the world. The music that we engage in worship with is for God. We lift up our voices to God. It's for him and it's for us. It's for us as well. You say, how do you know it's for us? Paul says addressing one another in these songs. The word there in the Greek is laleo. It simply means speaking. We are communicating one to another as we lift up these songs of praise and songs of worship. And we are, we are doing so. The context of that word speaking is not merely talking. It's not merely coffeehouse conversation. There is uh, an encouragement through psalm, hymn, and spiritual song. And what that results in practically for you and I in your notes is encouragement through worship. We're, are you encouraged when we worship together? I hope so. I certainly am. This is a verse that worship leaders love. I asked our worship pastor, Daniel, from the platform, I said, don't you love this verse? And he was just nodding his head because this is a, a, a verse that we love. And, and we love to hear people lifting up their voice. Now, some churches are very quiet. You ever been in a really quiet church? 
Some churches are just quiet places, okay? I've been to Europe. I've walked through some very austere cathedrals. They're beautiful. They're places of great solemnity and reverence, and it's fun to walk through places like that. But you know what? I kind of like noise myself. I like it to be a little noisy. I like it to be a little boisterous in the house of God, and not just when we're singing or playing. I like to come in the room before the service, and there's a buzz, and people are smiling and talking and laughing. You're happy to see each other. And I want to hear that after the service as well. I like to come up on the stage and you guys are still so happy to be talking to one another that I have to go, you know, get a room. (laughs) There's something about that that makes my pastor's heart glad that there is a joy there. Paul's saying, greet one another. You who share this, this common purpose, this desire of worship, be glad to see one another. Man, what a horrible thing to walk into church and to see people and you'd be like, oh man, I gotta see this person. No, (laughs) there's to be a unity there. And he uses this music motif. Why does he use the motif of music here? Because these are not just musical musical concepts. These these have content, there's content. I appreciate our worship team because they get together and they vet these songs. They look at them. Um, They understand musical worship is a biblical concept. There's something about melody and harmony and rhythm that when, when laden with a message and, and doctrine, that those of us who are not adept at, at the rhetoric and the terminology and all the verbiage and stuff, uh, that, that because the musical apparatus just kind of bypasses the purely intellectual and it goes straight to the heart, we can grasp something that, that I can stand up here for an hour and talk about and maybe you don't get it, but a song can speak to you. And I just love that about music. Music is such a gift because God created music. Did you know music predated you? Music predated all creation. It was around before the earth and the universe and humanity ever existed. Uh, The book of Job says that the angels of God sang when the foundations of the earth were being laid. God said, where were you, Job, when, when the morning stars, that's the angels, sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Can you imagine? God is creating everything and the angels are just losing their mind and they're just cutting loose. What a glorious song that must have been. We're going to get to hear that song one day. We're going to get to hear that. And I think everything that we experience on this earth, you have no concept of what it'll be like in heaven. It's going to be the way God intended for it to be. And it involves unity, this theme of music. Because by definition, singing is ordered. It's ordered. You think what happens up here when our, when our musicians gather? You think that they just come up here and they just kind of shoot from the hip? No, they have rehearsed. They have, they've gotten organized. This choir, they rehearsed this choir. They learned their parts. This band over here, they're not just getting lucky up here. They have worked on their stuff. They're perfectionists. They get it down. These singers up here that are so gifted, they are singing in unity. And they know that that is important. Okay, when, when they're singing a song and there's a moment of reverence and reflection in the middle of a song, you know, one of them just doesn't decide, I'm, I'm going to bust out a Beyonce lick right here and draw attention to myself. No, they know the importance of unity. Uh, I used to have a choral director when I was in high school, and she was fantastic in her personal philosophy. She made all the choir members hold hands when we sang, because her thought was, if we hold hands, we're going to feel this music together. And we're going to be more unified as we sing. 
And I loved that she did that. And it made us better. But music involves unity. But this motif goes beyond just the mere musicality of the songs. Paul mentions three kinds of musical expression. He says, we sing in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. If you've ever wondered what those are, the psalms, well, you've read the psalms. Are the psalms musical in nature? They were intended to be sung. That's right. That's right. And they were basically the Jewish hymn book. That was the, the Jewish hymnal. These were the songs of the ancient Jewish faith. And they were not just, you know, the Jewish top 40, all right? They weren't just catchy. They contained theology. They contained morality. They contained prophecy. They contained exhortations. And this is what they sang. Traditionally, Paul and Silas, when they were in that jail cell and they started singing, what were they singing? What do you think they were singing? Louis Louis? 99 bottles of beer on the wall? No, they were, they were singing the Psalms because those are, they make up the Jewish hymnal. And, and there was such joy and the spirit took over in that moment. What happened? The walls came tumbling down because there's power in worship. When Joshua goes out to fight the Canaanites, what's he got at the front of that army? The choir. They lead the way because the worship of God is powerful. And we sing the Psalms and we do that here. Whenever we summon scripture as we sing, we sing the Psalms, the ancient faith. We sing hymns. What is meant by hymns? Well, these would be the songs that have been added by every generation of believer. We closed with something that we consider to be a hymn today, didn't we? How great thou art. I love that hymn. You say, well, that wasn't around when Paul was writing that. No, but Paul had his own version of hymns. The songs added by every generation of the faithful. Okay? And there's a legacy of faith. And we, we glory in that. We celebrate the faith of those who have gone before. And so I love singing, How Great Thou Art. I, I, I grew up when Billy Graham was still preaching. I can hear George Beverly Shea singing, How Great Thou Art. And I love It Is Well With My Soul. I know the story of Horatio Spafford and the story behind that song. I know Amazing Grace, as we all do. And I know the story of John Newton, former slave ship captain that God redeemed to the glory of God. And so we sing these songs of the faith. And then there are spiritual songs, and these are the current songs of the church. Songs contemporary to, to our generation. There were songs contemporary to Paul's generation. And some of you are like, well, I don't like those new songs. They're just kind of fluffy. I like the old hymns. Well, you know what? There's some new songs being written that have deeper theology than some of the hymns that I know. There's some fantastic songs. We heard some of them today and we use it all to glorify God because today's spiritual contemporary songs are tomorrow's great hymns of the faith. If they've got staying power and they've got, they're based on something true and timeless. And so we lift it all to God and we use it to joyfully honor God. And yes, you are to sing joyfully. I hope you come in here ready to sing. I hope you come in here with a smile on your face. Be joyful. Get excited. We get excited about other, some of you guys got really excited when you heard the band cut loose and you thought they were busting out with Sweet Home Alabama this morning, didn't you? <laughs> Aha! Yeah, some of you were disappointed when you realized it wasn't Sweet Home Alabama. But you know, some of the old hymns were just saloon songs that they put Christian words to, so I say, bring on the Skinnerd, man. I'm all for it. I'm all for it. But we lift it up, and, and Paul says in verse 19 that we do this, uh, we are singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And there's this, there's a balance there. 
We, our joy in the Lord is one where it's relational. We are singing together and we're, we're glorying in that. Our joy in the Lord is intellectual. We're singing great doctrine and we're learning doctrine as we sing. Our joy in the Lord is, is moral. We sing about obedience to God and our joy in the Lord is, yes, emotional. And you can let things get emotional in here, all right? Don't, don't worry about it. Sometimes we worry, we get a little self-conscious. Do I, am I being too emotional? Listen, God gave you emotions, okay? But keep everything in, in a balanced perspective that we, we believe intellectually, we believe obediently, we believe morally, we believe emotionally as well because that's how God has made us. And we go on in verse 20, he says, giving thanks always and for everything. And in your notes, number two, this says that spirit-filled believers are thankful. Spirit-filled believers are thankful. See, these characteristics are really quite linear. When you are joyful, you are thankful. You can't be joyful without being thankful. You understand that? The non-spiritual person, the unregenerate person, the unsaved person is not naturally grateful. They're not, they're not thankful. There's a spirit of entitlement there. There's a spirit of resentment. There's a chip on the shoulder. They don't feel they're getting enough acclaim. They're not getting enough uh, respect. They're like Rodney Dangerfield, I get no respect, you know. They, they, they're resentful, they, 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 they deserve more, they think, more compensation, more appreciation. Their situation is always in need of improvement and, and their contentment is always contingent upon their circumstances. And sometimes their circumstances are good. And in those situations, they are grateful. But what do we know about circumstances? They change. And so when their situation goes south, their disposition goes south. And their appreciation and their, their contentment is merely temporary. Not so with the spirit-filled believer. Because in your notes, they have perpetual gratitude. Perpetual gratitude. What's verse 20 say? Give thanks, sometimes, always, and for everything. Is that you? Is that you? You give thanks always and for everything? If that guy cuts you off in traffic... What comes out of your mouth, huh? Guy cut me off a few weeks ago. I was coming to the church. I was on university. I'm almost to the overpass at the 40 there. The 40. I'm so California. Uh, at 40. All right. I'm almost there. I'm in the right lane. This guy comes across all lanes of traffic. No blinker, no nothing. He must have needed to get on the highway. And he gets right in front of me. Cuts me off. I had to slam the brakes on. I honked. You know what came out of my mouth? Hymns of praise. <laughs> I just started speaking in the King James English. Oh, Lordeth. Oh, Godeth, we cometh together now to offer you thanks for all you have bestowed upon me on this fine day. And Lord, that thou wouldst in thy beatitudineth mercy. And it just kind of fell apart, you know. No, no hymns, no hymns, unless they're hymns about God smiting somebody, you know. No, but we, we have to give thanks. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances for this, this is the part I, oh, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, okay? People come to me all the time, how do I know God's will? Pastor, I just wanna know the will of God. What's the will of God? How can I know the will of God for me? And I'm like, ah, this says give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus? 
And they're like, yeah, that's not going to work for me. You know, (laughs) that's what it says. It gives us at least one thing. It's his will that you give thanks in all circumstances. You're like, but that runs totally counter to my, my, my natural instincts. That's right. That's, that's the idea. Because God's design for you is not that you live according to your instincts. That's what the world does. That's what the world does. The world definitely does not live uh, in, 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 by giving thanks in all circumstances. The world is obsessed with complaining. It's a cottage industry. Now, I love following politics. I enjoy that. I watch, I keep up with the news. I've got some podcasts that I listen to, but I gotta be honest, 99% of it is complaining about stuff. Oh, the president's doing that. Oh, the senators, so-and-so's doing this. This governor over here, this congressman, this public figure, and you know, these guys, that's, that's really what they do. Now, I understand that's their job, and I understand you gotta keep the government in check, but if there was nothing to complain about, they wouldn't have a job. You ever go on social media? So much complaining on social media about stuff that people are like, it doesn't even involve them. They're just, they're just unleashing some beef on something. Remember when you would see a movie was about to come out and you were kind of intrigued and you might read a review or two and then you'd go check it out for yourself? Well, now you got 4,000 people telling you what's wrong with this movie that hasn't even hit the theater yet. And my favorite thing is on Facebook when somebody just, just uses it to vent their spleen, man, about something. Somebody did them wrong. My ex, my boss, my kid, my whatever. And they're just like, dear diary. (laughs) And they just, you know. And then we, because we've been trained to do it, we just hop on the comment section and we affirm their drama. And we're just like, oh, that's terrible. And we start complaining. And we're complaining about somebody we don't even know. I mean, I didn't wake up complaining about this person. I never even heard of them. And now I'm complaining about them with this person. What if instead we were thankful? What if we gave thanks in all things? You see, you see how unnatural Christianity is? It just goes 180 degrees the other direction from our natural inclinations. You say, well, how how do I do that? How do I give thanks when my situation is so crummy? I'll tell you how. Because you're not required to give thanks to the person who wronged you. You're not required to give thanks to the situation under which you are suffering. Paul does not say give thanks always and for everything and then put a period right there. He says give thanks always and for everything and then he goes on in verse 20, to who? To God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You be thankful to God. No matter what you're going through, you can always be thankful to God because there's always something to thank God for. Is that true? My freshman year of college, I landed at Liberty University. I had no financial business being there. I had scraped up enough money over the summer to pay for one semester. It was a total step of faith. My parents drove me from Sioux Falls, South Dakota to Lynchburg, Virginia. I had no idea how I was gonna pay for the whole year. I had enough to get through one semester. My plan was to get a job or to find a work study or something, okay? My problem was compounded by the fact that I didn't have a car. And so I either had to get a work study on campus or I had to find a job within walking distance from campus because I had no wheels. 
But man, I, there was nothing. There was no work studies available. They were all taken. I walked down to Walmart behind the campus. I walked, Lynchburg didn't have as many opportunities to work as it does today. And I, I checked out everything I could within walking distance. Nobody was hiring. I thought, man, what am I gonna do? I'm gonna have to go home mid-year. And then I saw a flyer. And the flyer said you could earn extra bucks by making calls on behalf of the Fraternal Order of Police. And so I went and I checked it out and they showed you the ropes. You can read from this script here and you call these people, you take pledges, take donations. We'll, we'll give you some money for that. And it was kind of, kind of a pain because you're talking to people that don't really want to be talking to you. And you're reading from a script and you feel like an idiot and, and they, they pay you nothing but peanuts, but it was better than nothing. Best part was they sent a shuttle to the campus to pick up any, any students that didn't have a car. And they would, they would transport you there. And, and they sent the shuttle every Saturday morning at 8 a.m., and they said, now don't miss the bus. You miss the shuttle, that's it. We have to cut you loose because there's a lot of students who will gladly take your place. So you miss the shuttle, you're gone. Don't miss the shuttle. The first Saturday came, my alarm didn't go off. I woke up at 7.55 with horror on my face. I exploded out of bed. I threw some sweats on. I, I, I brushed my teeth. My hair was inexplicable. I didn't have time to tie my shoes. I grabbed my sneakers. I ran out to the curb in time to see the shuttle pulling away. And I ran as fast as I could to try to catch that shuttle. And I ran all the way through the campus after this shuttle. I'm heaving, man. I'm chugging. And every time it would stop at a stop sign, I would have a glimmer of hope that I was going to be able to catch it. But alas and alack, it would pull away before I could get there. And I, I followed it all my, almost all the way to the front of campus, to the front entrance, and it finally just outran me. And I stopped, and I'm out of breath, and I'm just heaving in the fumes of the exhaust. And that shuttle just disappeared down the road along with my dreams of higher education. And I was just so sad. And I turned and I began that dejected trek back to my dorm. And I walked in my dorm. And a dorm can be a very depressing place when you don't have money, a car, or a job. And I walked down the hall toward my room. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I heard a rather chipper voice. And an older student stuck his head out the door and he says, hey, Scott, good morning. Now, you don't want to see that <laughs> when you're bumming. You know, I'm, I'm like, I'm thinking, okay, howdy doody. I'm not in the mood, you know. <laughs> and this guy was the spiritual life director. That was kind of like the, the dorm chaplain for our floor. And he goes, hey, something, something wrong? Anything I can, uh, I can help you with? And I said, oh, well, uh, and I just told him the whole story. He goes, why don't you come on in my room? Let's, let's talk. I go, okay. So I went in there. I sat down in the chair. And uh, he said, Scott, what brought you here? And I said, here? He said, to Liberty. What, what brought you to, the, to this place? And I said, uh, station wagon? He's like, no, no. <laughs> he said, who? Who brought you here? And I said, uh, oh, uh, God. God. God brought me here. Pastor's kid. And uh, he said, so what's the problem? I said, I don't have any money. He said, Scott, who brought you here? I said, God. He said, so what's the problem? I said, I don't have any money. <laughs> he said, Scott. And he, he bent down and he took my head in his hands. He goes, who? 
brought you here? And then it started to sink in. I needed to trust the one who had more power, more wisdom, more ability than I could ever imagine. If he brought me here, there was no problem. He said, it's very critical that you do something right now in this moment. It is critical that you begin to thank God for everything that he's done for you. You be grateful for what he's done, that he's brought you here. And I I want you to just start thanking God for everything that you can think of. And so I started thinking of stuff. And, And I bowed my head and I started to pray. And I said, Lord, thank you. Thank you for bringing me here. Thank you for bringing me here safely. Thank you, thank you that I had parents that supported the decision to come here. Thank you that you, you supplied the money for this first semester. Thank you that, that you, you've introduced me to so many new friends already. And God, thank you for this dorm. Thank you for the roof over my head. And, and, and thank you for this, this spiritual life director, God, who is encouraging me. And thank you, thank you for the classes that I've been attending and my professors. And thank you for the grades that I've gotten so far. And thank you for what I, I heard back in chapel. And everything that I thought of jogged my memory about something else. And then I started going back in time, getting historical. Thank you for my family. Thank you for my, my parents. Thank you for my upbringing. Thank you for the fact that, that you introduced yourself to me at an early age and I prayed and I received Christ and that you saved me. Thank you for my church family. Thank you for, and I just listed everything I think of and, and I was just not even scratching the surface. And I started to weep. And it was like big old chains just fell off of me. And I wasn't worried about the future. I was filled with gratitude. And I was crying, and then my SLD, he started crying. He grabbed his guitar, and he's, he started playing a worship song, and we started singing together. And the basketball team lived on that floor, and one particularly tall player was walking by the open door, and he heard us singing, and he just kind of looked in there at these two weepy dudes just singing along. <laughs> and there was freedom, and it totally changed my perspective. Now, here's, here's a wrap-up to that story. I got through that semester. I came back the second semester. Now, the rule at Liberty was, if you haven't paid your tuition, you don't take your finals. Finals were right around the corner. I knew I owed thousands of dollars. My mom called me. She said, son, we really need to know how much you owe. We need to know specifically how to pray. I said, I'll call the finance office. I called them. I said, yeah, I just need to check my balance. He said, yeah, what's the last name? I said, Grim. He goes, G-R-I-M-M. I said, yes, sir. And he goes, just a minute. He goes, okay, here you go. Uh, remaining balance, $100. I said, uh, that, <laughs> well, that, uh, I'm sorry, that, that doesn't sound, that doesn't sound right. He goes, oh, uh, hold on a second. And I'm just listening to him type, you know? And he goes, okay, all right, yeah, no, 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 I, I, I made a mistake, sorry about that. No, um, you're a member of the Chamber Singers, is that right? I said, yes. He goes, yeah, that's an audition-only class. And so if you get into that class, it's accompanied by a $100 scholarship, so your bill is zero. Now, the proper response to news like that is, thank you very much, and you hang up. (laughs) And that's what I did. And folks, to this day, I have no idea how that happened. I don't know what happened. I mean, I do. I just don't know specifically how. 
And my point in sharing that is to give glory to God. My point in sharing that is not to say, if you just have faith, God will wipe out your debt. If you just believe enough, if you just sing hard enough, if you pray hard enough, God's gonna take care of that. I just wanna give honor to the Lord who did that thing for me. But listen to me, that moment was not the moment that set me free. What really gave me freedom in my perspective happened months earlier in a dorm room when I just unleashed gratitude before the Lord because it changes us. It changes us to give glory and honor and thanks in all things to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, we look now at verse 21, the last thing here. Paul says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And this is number three in your notes, that spirit-filled believers are humble. They're humble. You're joyful, you're thankful, and you're humble. And the word here uh, for submitting is hupotasso in the Greek, to subject oneself, to obey, to be subordinate. Now that's hard for us to imagine. Why would I be subordinate to another human being? And the reason Paul says that we do this is out of our reverence for Christ. The idea is not that we submit to somebody because they're superior to us or that they have a position above us or, or, or out of deference to their, their station of life or their ethnicity or anything like that. We submit because it's out of reverence for Christ because we are the body of Christ. And when we submit one to another, we are submitting to Christ. So just, just do this for me. I want you to, next time, next time you get your hackles up in church. Know what I mean? Next time you're worked up about something, somebody's done you wrong and you, you're gonna go find somebody to talk to and usually it's the pastor. When you find yourself in that situation, before you come and you talk to anybody, I want you to ask yourself three questions. Am I walking in joy? Am I walking in gratitude? And am I walking in humility? Would you do that for me? Would you do that because that's what we're called to do? Because here in the church, we are to submit to each other. That means in the church, nobody's got their own agenda. Nobody gets to dominate. We put others first. We esteem others first, above us. We put the body before ourselves. Even when we're convinced our agenda is the right one, we humble ourselves and we submit and in doing so, in your notes, we are serving Jesus by serving others. Because this is the body, and it's Christ's body. And when you submit to those in the body, you're submitting to Christ, submitting to Jesus. And that is easier said than done because of the nature of how church is done today. See, back in the Middle Ages, the church, the government, same thing. The church was the government. And then after the Reformation, which I... I'm glad there was a reformation. It, it, it didn't dramatically change all that much. You had different things. It was no longer one, one dominant church around the world. There were a lot of different denominations and beliefs, right? If you were in Switzerland, you, you'd be Lutheran. If you were in the Netherlands, you'd be reformed and all of these things. But depending on the region, that kind of dictated the religion and there was still a connection to the government. And even in colonial America, this kind of remained the case. Up in Massachusetts, you'd be congregational. If you were in Virginia, you'd be Anglican. And after the American Revolution, something happened. It was the rise of what is called voluntarism. And there was a true separation of church and state. No longer would the government foot the bill 
for anything happening, happening religiously in the church. The church, local churches or denominations were responsible for their own expenses. And that is wonderful and I am fine with all of that. But over time, what ended up happening is churches realized we gotta pay for everything now. It's not the government. And there became this culture of competition to garner as many adherence to our church, our faith, our denomination so that we can pay for the stuff that we wanna pay for. And so they began to entice people. Come join our church. We're the church that offers this. Come join our church. We're the church where you do this. Hey, we got this going on over here. And there became a real consumer mentality among churchgoers. And it bred this, this notion of this is all about me in the church. And it bred a spirit of entitlement. And so with that spirit, it's hard to cut through all of that and submit to one another. How, how, when was the last time you're going down the road and you look at a billboard for a church that says, join our church, die to self, submit to other people. Now that's all good, but that's horrible marketing. But it's what is asked of us. And it's what Jesus would want because in Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve to give his life a ransom for many. And Jesus' own words put it in perspective. Matthew 23, verse 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. If I were to read you all the verses along these lines, we'd be here all day. But folks, this is what being spirit-filled looks like. It's not some supernatural manifestation that tells you if you're spirit-filled. It starts right here in the body with walking in joy, walking in gratitude, walking in humility. You don't have that. The authenticity of your filling comes under question because we are to be unified with these characteristics. We are to sing a song of the saved together in unity, in joy, in thankfulness, in humility. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou art. Heavenly Father, we pray for that unity. We pray for the power of the indwelling spirit to fill us, Lord, to take control of us, God. May we be so 
uh, simpatico in our humility, in our gratitude, in our joy, God, that we are known by it. When people look at us, they recognize us as you have designed for us to be your disciples, your representatives in this world. May we be the church that you have called us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.